I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is perilously close to the last possible moment for humanity to turn the ship around. But it's going to require leadership. It's going to require advocacy at every single level of society it's going to require kids to march in the streets and it's going to require the middle class to take on things that they would think were uncomfortable in normal easy times but humanity's done things like that a number of times before we just got to do it one more time hi i'm sarah wilson and this is wild a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Saul Griffiths is an inventor and highly excitable climate advisor to the Biden administration. He rarely wears shoes, rides a bike everywhere, and was officially made a MacArthur genius in recognition of his prodigy of invention in service of the world community. His inventions actually include a kid's cartoon series and a solar-powered scooter, as well as a wind power company. He's also Australian and he lives in a tiny town called Austinmere, which is about an hour's south of where I live here in Sydney. And I hike through it quite regularly. There's a great um, fish and chips shop and I, I go there and then jump on the train back to Sydney afterwards. It's funny, you know, American media love to froth over this central casting mad Aussie inventor image that he's got going on. It's like they can't quite believe that this is the guy responsible for America's, if not the world's, climate policy. And they love referencing his TED Talk where he PowerPoints the carbon footprint of his underpants and they talk about the six-foot hot tub in his backyard um, that he uses to store excess electricity from experimental solar panels on his roof. I'm sure the the neighbours love that. Anyway, I first came across Saul on one of my eternal searches for legit climate solutions that bring true excitement and hope to humans. His wild shtick, which I've been super keen to pick apart with him for a number of years now, is summed up in his new book, Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future, which he wrote for Joe Biden, and he's got an Australian version coming out in a few months' time. The vibe is this. We can get to those 2030 targets required for our survival on this planet using technology that already exists, like it's there ready to come off the shelf. Plus, if he had to choose a country in the world where it can all be done fastest and with the biggest economic win, he'd say, now you ready for it? Australia. Solving climate change, Saul says, should taste at least as good as carrots, at best ice cream. It should not be painful. But before we kick off, there are a few terms that Saul bandies about and it requires a bit of assumed knowledge. So when he mentions COP, he's referring to COP26, which is the big global climate conference that was about to kick off when we recorded this interview, the one that's happening in Glasgow. We also talk about carbon sequestering or carbon offsetting, which is a technique that takes the carbon out of the atmosphere and then sort of, I guess, sinks it generally into the soil via trees. Um, It's a bit of a controversial 
technique and it's something that actually I do cover off in I think two episodes back in my Ask Me Anything episode. And finally, we talk about EVs and of course that just means electric vehicles. Saul, welcome to Wild. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Sarah. So, Saul, when you're talking electrify everything, on the one hand, it can mean power plants, uh, fossil fuel plants can switch to renewables and that's a big part of things and that's generally how we talk about things. But I think when I speak to people, they're really keen to know what they can do and a big part of what you're talking about is stuff that we can do at home. And I think I've got this right, 42% of Australia's emissions come from our homes, from cars, from our heaters, our air conditioning, that kind of thing. And I'm just wondering if you could actually talk us through when you're saying let's swap to electrical versions of things, what are you talking about? What are some of those swaps that people can make? Very explicitly, it's a pretty short list and it's something that everyone can start on tomorrow. It's decisions that the average Australian or the average American makes every 10 years. It's what is in your driveway? Are those vehicles electric or do they run on petrol or diesel? We need them to be electric. It is what is inside your kitchen? Is your oven and your stovetop running on natural gas or are they running on electricity? And it's a couple of things that are in your basement. One of them is a water heater. Is it running on natural gas or is it running on electricity? And then in a lot of Australian homes in the south, they have some type of machine that heats the home in the winter. And is that a natural gas furnace or a natural gas heater or is that a heat pump or an electric heater, and we need those also to switch to electric. Just to give a little bit of perspective on the bigger picture, the climate debate in Australia has been a little bit broken for 20 or 30 years because it's been about the supply side. The supply side are machines that are owned by government and industries and big lobby groups, coal plants, etc., etc. And you would think in Australia that that was the entire climate solution. But the reality is you have to solve the demand side at the same time. Demand side is where real human beings live, the punters, the voters, you know, the people who own the household. And we have to decarbonise demand at the same rate that we decarbonise supply. So we have a huge amount of agency as individuals in fixing our homes and those half a dozen machines that I just named inside them. Perhaps it's a reflection of um, living in Australia where I think a lot of people have lost faith in our government to solve the climate crisis on our behalf, I think that comes as good news, which is why when I first read about your thesis and then sped read your book, which is coming out, I think, later or in a month or two here in Australia, um, I thought this is going to land really well because it actually gives, I think it's six or seven um, sort of assets, consumables that people can switch to. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a game here I'm going to volley some questions at you that I have and that I imagine other people sitting on either side of the climate debate fence might have. And I'm going to play a bit of a Debbie Downer role here, right? Um, Oh, no, no, I I have a new name for Debbie Downer. It's OK Doomer. OK Doomer. Yeah. All right. (laughs) You're an OK Doomer. All right. Okay. I'm going to totally OK Doomer you too. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, I think we're the same age. So we, and we're probably very aware of offending baby boomers. Um, So yeah. OK Doomer. Oh, fuck them all. (laughs) (laughs) They've kind of fucked us. They put us in this mess. (laughs) All right. Electrify everything and fuck the boomers. So Debbie Downer, OK Doomer voice on. To swap like our gas heater out for, say, air conditioning, electrified air conditioning, um, it seems kind of antithetical. When I've spoken to friends and to my audience about this as a solution, when we talk electrify everything, there is a perception that, oh, hang on, but it's natural gas. I've got a natural gas heater or my stove is natural gas and that's always deemed to be the cleanest kind of uh, option. And, in fact, it's very much the opposite. There's lots of studies that have come out showing just how much they leak and uh, I think linked directly to asthma in children. Um, But the idea of switching to electricity, we've got this mindset that somehow it's dirty, particularly in, well, in New South Wales and various states around Australia. How do you get around that aspect of the argument? Uh, Okay, Duma, you are right. Today, electricity is dirty because in Australia in particular, we use black and brown coal to make electricity and it's the worst possible way to make electricity and it creates a lot of carbon dioxide emissions and it also a bunch of environmental toxins. So when I'm asking you to switch your natural gas 
inside your home. But I'm not going to call it natural gas anymore. That was a 50-year successful brainwashing campaign. Yeah. I'm going to call it methane. When you're mm-hmm. burning methane inside your house to choke your children and your pets and your, your mother-in-law, um, I want you to switch to an electric heating solution, electric heat pump, and I want you to ultimately power that from solar and wind. This argument you used is very similar to the the dumbass argument that we've had for about 10 years in the electric vehicle industry, which says if you buy an electric vehicle and you use the electricity grid in New South Wales, it's no better than a diesel truck. That is true, but it won't always be true because we will eventually get around to decarbonizing the electricity grid. In fact, if you buy an electric car today, every single year it gets greener and greener and greener because we're putting more renewables in the grid. If you buy an electric heat pump today, it gets greener and greener and greener every year because every year we clean up the grid. If you buy it and you put solar on your roof and a battery on the side of your house, then you're golden. You can you can be decarbonized and almost guilt-free tomorrow. Okay, that's the answer I was expecting and especially around this idea of natural gas. Um, it's beyond greenwashing. It's brainwashing. Uh, there's, you know... I always say arsenic is natural. It doesn't mean we're meant to eat it. It's the same with methane. It might be natural, but it's also polluting the hell out of our planet. So next one. Seems like a lot of waste to go and swap out all of our various utilities, the car and so on, and swap them for a electric version. Is that what you're saying, Saul Griffiths? Or is there some nuance here? <laughs> Uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. Yes, that is what I'm saying, which means there's nuance here. I'm not saying tomorrow go out in the, in Australia, the average household has 1.7 cars. Don't trash them tomorrow. The next time one of those cars needs to be replaced, replace it with an electric vehicle. The average water heater lasts about 12 years. The average natural gas heater lasts about 15 years. The, the average kitchen oven or kitchen stovetop us, I think, 18 or 20 years. What really needs to happen if we're to hit a climate target between one and a half and two degrees is not to go out tomorrow and spend a whole bunch of money and replace everything, but every save your pennies so the next time that machine fails, you buy the clean electric option. So don't go and trade in your Corolla for a Leaf tomorrow. Wait till your Corolla carks it. Let your Corolla sort of crawl into your driveway in one last gasp with smoke coming out the engine. Then buy a Leaf. And if we all subscribe to that theory, we'll come in under two degrees. Okay, that's a big claim. Um, Now, this brings me to another Duma question. Well, that could take quite a long time. I think one of the claims you've made is that we could hit a 80% reduction in emissions here in Australia by 2030. I mean, that would be meeting our commitments at a canter. But that's eight years away. Can we really do that when power plants last 50 years? As you said, cars last, what is it, 10, 15 years, whatever it might be. Is it doable? Yeah, so I'm going to introduce a new idea on the new idea of electrification. I know you didn't want me to do that, but here we go. Please do. In climate science, people talk about a thing called committed emissions. This means how much carbon dioxide will a machine that has already been born and is out there in the world, like that Corolla, how much carbon will it emit before it dies? And so, you know, cars last 20 years, furnaces and hot water heaters 12 to 15, like I just said. Some power plants last 40 to 50 years. If you let every machine that exists on the planet today live out its natural life, that'll take us to about 1.8 degrees. This is why you hear people out there say we should retire coal early because coal are the small number of the biggest machines with the most emissions. So if we get rid of them before the end of their lifetime, we can bring that into 1.7 or 1.6 degrees. We could also bring in the time when we retire our Corollas and our Camrys and our um, Ford Rangers, uh, and that would bring us in a little bit earlier. But I think if we're realistic, people are a little bit conservative with their money. And so Mm. we now just need to try to get everyone on the cadence of replace every fossil fuel machine when it dies. When it dies, take it out back, shoot it if you have to. 
replace it with the correct electric item, and that is our best chance of coming in at 1.6, 1.7 degrees. We are already seeing the coal plants retiring early of their own accord because they're no longer economic. The only way to make them economic is something that the current Australian government tries to do, which is prop them up with subsidies, which we should all, as voters, voting citizens, parents and people of the world, say bugger off to. That's right. I mean, the International Energy Alliance <laughs> advises the Australian government to do exactly that, which is the ultimate irony. Okay, so you've answered all of that, um, but I suppose there is a, a, a remaining issue. Does it give us a leave pass from simply consuming a hell of a lot less? Is this a case of you can keep your flashy four-wheel drive and have your green conscious intact too? Does it detract from the idea that we should actually be changing our way of living? Or are you a pure pragmatist, a pure climate nerd, tech nerd pragmatist who goes, people aren't going to change fast enough, so therefore let's meet them where they are, allow them to keep consuming and electrify everything? I think I've answered your question, haven't I? Oh, I'm so much more complicated than that. <laughs> Good. If you you sped read the book, which means you probably didn't read the last chapter, which tells you that you can solve climate change and still choke the world's oceans with plastics. We, uh, I, I actually live in Australia now, but I'm back in the US for my book tour. In the United States, it is no longer possible to be more than 20 miles from a road. They have crisscrossed the entire continent. Those roads are dividing ecosystems. It's the division of those ecosystems that is part of the mass die-off problem that we have right now. So, yes, technically we can solve climate change. We could all have an electric Ford Ranger. We could all have an, a hot tub that we use to store uh, yesterday's sunlight for tomorrow's bathtub. Um, and we could almost make that work out, but we still have to be careful about our other consumption practices, using plastics, etc. But I guess... That is to say, I'm also a pragmatist, which means we're not going to win over the whole populace with a, a very a, a stronger message than your life should look roughly the same as it is now when we solve climate change and your children will be healthier because we stop burning methane inside their kitchens and bedrooms and you'll have better air quality in your community because you have electric vehicles and there won't be so much noise because the roads will be quieter with electric vehicles. I think you go so far as an environmentalist with those things that it probably people will notice that their lives are improving and they'll probably be more willing to actually start making other changes so our communities are more walkable, we use more public transit, we protect more wildlands, etc. And so, yeah, I've argued myself into being the aware pragmatist that can argue both sides of the coin. But right now we're still in a fight for, honestly, we're in a fight for 2030 and getting as many of the people in the general public to sign up as possible for solving the things they can solve. And honestly, if you're, you know, if you're a working parent with a mortgage, you probably can imagine doing electric things that roughly look like your life today. You can't imagine making all the sacrifices that the extreme environmentalists do. So I think it's the best messaging and it, it is a true story. We can solve climate change, electrify everything, but we have to do it much faster than you think. Which brings me to policy and the government's intervention here. We do need government intervention um, because we need incentives to make this happen fast, I would imagine. Subsidies, rebates, all of that kind of thing. I think you've estimated it would cost about $12 billion for Australia to kind of convert. Have I got that right? So cost is not really the right way to use it. Cost is how a right-wing uh, radio jock would say because they'd try to make it sound like it costs too much. $12 billion sounds like more money than I have or you have, so it sounds like it costs too much. However, what you missed was we would save $300 billion over the coming decade by making an investment of $12 billion. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll borrow money, as you do to buy your house or your castle, and you know, we'll borrow $12 billion. But we know that we'll own that castle and it'll be fabulous about 10 years from now and it will save us $300 billion in rent. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about Australia right now is we actually have the opportunity to, re to lead the world. We had this solar miracle on our rooftops. No one else in the world has energy as cheap as we do delivered from the solar on our rooftops. We have a mild climate, which makes the heating of water and the heating of uh, our homes easier with uh, heat pumps. And we've got big roofs because we've got big suburbs because we have low population density. So we can actually 
we can solve this first and we can go first in the world and we can show the world how to do it and we'd be saving that $300 billion soonest by 2030 if we made this investment. To your first point, you have to have governments involved. Because of what I told you before about committed emissions, like if we let every machine that exists live out its natural life, it goes to 1.8 degrees, that means you need roughly policy that makes sure that no more machines can be born that use fossil fuels. And we have to get there as soon as possible. And that means we need the whole suite of things from tax-friendly deductions to rebates for low-income homes to subsidies, and we need to do it as fast as possible. Australia can come together to do this, even though we think of our politics as dysfunctional. I can assure you, having been working in American politics for the last few years, <laughs> it can be worse. Um, but Australia can fix this, and quickly, and it, it will be good for us. Uh, but it, it, you, it really cannot be done without government playing its role. Yeah. And I think a target as well is a big part of that. A target, a commitment, a 2030 commitment um, so that the investment comes in. The investment dollars also roll in. Let me, let me, let me give you a second. I work on three continents. I work in Europe on this issue. I work in America and I'm engaged deeply with the White House on their comings and goings. And looking around the world, Australia has the easiest run at this. We are not the lucky country. We are the luckiest country by a mile. We can shit it in compared to other countries because our climate is so mild and our solar is so good. So why is the Australian government not listening to that? This is why I'm trying to tell you a story about the machines on the demand side and what we have to win in our homes. We have allowed a scare campaign run by, you know, let's call it the owners of the large machines, the huge emitters, the fossil fuels... Um, they've driven the dialogue. They've made us scared mm -hmm. of losing our exports. And coal is a huge export for us. We sell about $60 billion a year. And LNG is a huge export, $15 billion a year. Sounds like that's amazing, $75 billion a year. But we only make about 20 cents on the dollar. So that's only worth $15, $20 billion. You know how much we spend on petrol and diesel in Australia every year? $32 billion. Do you want to know what's a scandal? We're net negative on our exports of fossil fuels. This is a fucking insane deal that we could be powering our, our vehicle fleets with our solar mm -hmm. and not having to lose money on our net net fossil uh, imports, exports. Why isn't that a giant headline? That's because we allowed the government and the Murdoch Fox media to own the narrative. Well, they've shifted their narrative on that now. So in some ways, um, hopefully things will speed up on that front. But the other thing, of course, is the jobs. The coal jobs, they're just not that great. There's not a lot of jobs in the fossil fuel industry here in Australia. That's a major furphy as well. And there's far more jobs on the horizon for renewables. Yeah, we have 10 million homes in Australia. And I just told you what you need to do. You're going to have to install two vehicle chargers. You're going to have to replace the water heater. You're going to have to put solar on the roof of every single one of them. You're going to have to put a battery on the side of every single one of them. That's an awful lot of tradies doing an awful lot of work in the suburbs in every zip code in the country, as opposed to the few thousands of people that are in the existing coal industry. Yep. My first job was in a blast furnace and I, you know, I've also worked on a sheep farm. So I am sympathetic to the arguments that come from those people whose coal jobs and agricultural jobs are threatened. There will be, you know, the big renewable installations will be in the regions in those places and they will create more jobs than are lost in the coal industry. That's the other good news story. And there's just so many good news stories that a government could run with here. But um, I'm just going to leave my, my Duma hat on a little bit longer. Flights. Flights can't be electrified at this stage. What do we do there? There is obviously some aspects of our consumer behaviour that can't be electrified. What is your answer to that, Saul? Um, you can electrify any flight that you want as long as you don't want to fly more than about 500 kilometres. Okay. We'll get to be able to fly 1,000 kilometres. That's just an energy density argument. So electric fl flying will be possible for all our regional flights, maybe not the transcontinental flight. But flights globally are less than 2% of global energy supply. There's more than enough biofuels. Australia, with a huge landmass, could pr be producing enough biofuels to do that. Mm. I think the waste bagasse from the sugarcane industry that we currently burn it very inefficiently to run that industry is roughly equivalent to a large portion of our domestic flights. So we could be creating biofuels to offset those. There are other hard to decarbonize things like steel. Uh, you can either do this with small amounts of hydrogen or there are 
complete electrochemistry pathways. That means the wholesale electrification of the steel industry. This is a good news story that Australians really should get behind. And I say this as a trained metallurgist, which was my first degree. My, my university degree was paid for by the big Australian. So I'm, uh, I actually love steel <laughs> still today. Renaissance man that you are, yeah. Um, the reality is that half of the cost of steel or iron is the energy cost. Australia will have the cheapest solar and the cheapest wind power in the whole world. Why we are thinking about making hydrogen, sending that hydrogen at great expense and low efficiency all the way across the world with our iron ore to then make steel elsewhere is crazy because if we, make, if we up convert our iron ore to steel in Australia or at least to iron, that will consume you know, multiple times as much electricity as the whole domestic economy yeah. and it would make such a huge value increase to our economy that this is a no-brainer. Australia should be the foundry for the world making the green steel, green aluminum, green copper that helps the whole rest of the world decarbonise. Yeah. I think Ruscano sums that up in a book that he put out a couple of years ago now. All right, flights. We've covered that off. We've covered off the fact that there are solutions for all of these things and I think it's a really big part of what you talk about, that the technology is ready to take off the shelf for most of these quandaries. Um, it's just a matter of applying them. Grid stability, that's a big one that people generally hit me with when I discuss all of this. Where are we at with that? Uh, the grid is operated by incredibly conservative engineers. I work with and love engineers. I am an engineer. My father is a conservative engineer. Um, they want to make sure that we have 99.9999% reliability of the grid and, and they're operating very conservatively, the utility companies as a result. We know how to balance the voltage on the local grid, which is part of the stability problem. The other is the phase. We know how to match the phases with contemporary power electronics. We know how to, to control the voltage with sufficient storage and demand response. These are really non-issues that are used as big scare campaigns by conservative companies that don't want to change what they're doing. Got it. As well as our government. Yeah. I don't know a single engineer who's actually scared of going in there, rolling up their sleeves and just solving this problem with what we have right now. Oh, I love that answer. All right. Batteries. Batteries being a ecological issue in the equation of things. The uh, average Australian needs roughly four to 5,000 kilograms of fossil fuels wrenched from Mother Earth every year from her womb to power their lifestyle. That's five tonnes of black, gooey, messy crap. When you burn it, it becomes 10 to 15 tonnes of carbon dioxide in the air. If you took the average Australian's life, you powered half of it with solar, you powered half of it with wind, and because the solar and the wind doesn't work all the time, you stored half of it in batteries that Australian would need 50 kilograms of solar cells every year, 50 kilograms of wind power every year, and 50 kilograms roughly of batteries every year, considering that batteries only last about 10 years, solar 20 years, wind 30 years. Mm -hmm. You could argue about those numbers and you might come a little bit above or a little bit below that. But wrenching from Mother Earth's womb 150 kilograms of stuff every year as opposed to 5,000 kilograms looks like a pretty good deal to me. It does indeed, but what about disposing of those batteries when they are done? So to talk to my inner metallurgist, all of the things that we just talked <laughs> about are made out of this magic thing called metals. What are the two most recycled materials in the world today? Steel and aluminum. Silicon is extremely recyclable, which is the solar cell problem. Steel is extremely recyclable, which is more than half of the wind turbine problem. Lithium is extremely recyclable, which is the battery problem you would have to have more confidence that we can recycle those materials than you should have confidence in us scrubbing carbon dioxide out of the air. Okay, got it. I could go on and on, um, but I'm wondering if I've missed anything. I'm sure you've had all the doomers come at you over the years. Is there another criticism? You, you didn't ask me about hydrogen. Oh, hydrogen, yeah, blue and green hydrogen. Tell me about hydrogen. Well, there's grey hydrogen, which is cynically using fossil fuels and then pretending that you're going to sequester the carbon dioxide after you use fossil mm -hmm. fuels to make hydrogen. All of the world's hydrogen that is produced today basically is grey hydrogen made as a byproduct of the natural gas industry. Blue hydrogen is you're going to sequester it and maybe make some of it with renewals, not all of it. Green hydrogen is the only one that is really 
viable if we're trying to make a sustainable planet. Green hydrogen means you start with electricity, so hydrogen is electrification anyway, it's just electrification with a not a very good battery. So when you try to store electricity in hydrogen, you lose 30% when you convert it to hydrogen, and then you lose another 15 to 20% when you compress it, and then you lose another 50% when you turn it back into electricity. So it's a terrible battery, and you only get about a third or a half of the energy back out. Mm-hmm. We are being sold that Australia is going to be the hydrogen superpower, yada, yada, yada. We're going to save the world with hydrogen. We're probably the only country in the world that is going to have sufficient excess of renewables to even consider making any hydrogen. But we should set our expectations much lower than the current hype that we're going to be this, that everything's going to be solved with hydrogen. We will solve most things with electrification. And because it's much more efficient to go straight from that electricity into a battery and then run your car or run your house or run your steel mill, the great majority will be direct electrification, not through hydrogen. And we need to call the Australian government's investment strategy a little overweighted in favour of hydrogen, which is really just doing the bidding of Germany and Japan, Mm. which like hydrogen for historical reasons because they lost World War II because they didn't have liquid fuels. Got it. While you're on your rant, do you want to talk us through your thoughts on carbon sinking and carbon offsetting? I imagine you have a similar take. It is not impossible to sequester carbon. We should sequester carbon. In fact, there's a great technology which we call trees, which knows how to sequester carbon. So we should be growing more trees. We should be having better agricultural practices. All of that is a good idea. The problem is that the Australian government and other world governments at the last 20 COPs meaning starting in the early 2000s, figured out how they could lie to each other that they were achieving their climate goals by counting not cutting down existing trees as carbon sequestration. And then they kept getting addicted to these, let's be honest, accounting hacks. Mm -hmm. And so we've now modelled in so much carbon dioxide removal in the latter half of this century in the best case scenarios of the IPCC that you would have to create an industry larger than all of the world's fossil fuel industries pumping that crap back into the ground. That's not going to happen by 2050. So this is why net zero 2050 is really not good enough. We've already lied to ourselves and done the accounting tricks that's consumed up all of that play we had. This is why you now need to just make proper deep cutting mitigation, that means electrification of everything, strategies, and we need to stop relying on unreasonable amounts of carbon sequestration. That's not to say you don't do it. Yes, and we need as you know, we need it as well, but we shouldn't be allowing our national government and other international governments to pretend that we're going to do 10 gigatons of carbon sequestration every year starting at the middle of the century. It's just not reasonable. My understanding, there's not enough land on the planet to sink all of the carbon. Not that you should trust Americans, but... Be careful what you say, given that you're trying to sell your book to them right now. But anyway... I am. But Americans, you know, they have some pretty good science establishments and the uh, National Academy of Sciences in the US did a very thorough study of carbon sequestration in 2017 and said, at the very upper limits of carbon sequestration, you could do 10 gigatons a year, which is modelled in, but it will come at serious compromise of agriculture and other land use. Do we want to eat? Yeah. More reasonable is two gigatons. So smart people say, stop cheating the accounting, please. Yeah. Um, We've been accused of cheating um, on several counts here in Australia, of course. But hey, listen, I want to switch tax because being a Debbie Downer really um, is not much fun. I've, I've done it now for about 20 minutes and I'm over it. Um, what I'd love to do is actually get a little bit of an insight into what you're working on in San Francisco. You've got an invention factory there in San Francisco called Other Lab and I've got quite obsessed by it. Um, You've got bikes hanging everywhere. Um, you're literally inventing stuff there that I think every little kid would be so excited by. I couldn't believe that such a career path could exist. What are you getting excited about at the moment in terms of technology that can help us electrify everything? So I have uh, about six locations in San Francisco that employ close to a 1,000 people. Some are fully-fledged companies deploying solar trackers that are track making our solar cells track the sun to get the most energy out of them. Is that the technology that, like, tilts, can tilt um, the sun so that it f- reflects straight onto the panels? 
So it it face it face east in the morning when the sun comes up, and it face west in the evening when the sun goes down, and then overnight turns back to the east, and it gets more energy out of your solar. And then we have an air conditioning company that's exciting that's employing a lot of people. But I think you're asking about what's like coming right now. Um, we're do, we're doing some exciting projects in in mobility solutions. That means transport, and we're making self charging solutions. So motorcycles, scooters, and cars that never need to be plugged in and can do more than their fair share of miles. So solar-operated scooters, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, we have a pretty magical little moped that can do about uh, 30 to 50 kilometres a day. You never plug it in. You just park it, point it at the sun, and then next time you need to use it, it's ready to go. That's awesome. So what's can I ask, what's the bit that points at the sun? Like is there a surface area that's broad enough? How have you got around that? Solar is so cheap now that you can cover surfaces and it can usefully work. So we we basically have a motorbike that looks like a credit card on wheels. The credit card is covered in solar cells and it can charge itself and run along. We're also working on thermal storage systems that take yesterday's sunlight and give you a hot shower tomorrow morning and keep the floor in your house warm. We're working on next generation solar, which should cover more of your roof with higher efficiency with solar. We are working on putting batteries in unusual places that make the batteries cheaper and make them uh, used more effectively, which is important to balance the grid, the solar and the wind. Um, We're working on offshore wind energy technologies. We have a whole team doing floating offshore wind for deep water. So once you get past the continental shelf, you've got to go, you've got to have the wind turbines float. How do you stabilise those? Because, I mean, I know on land it's a massive issue to keep them upright. What do you do out at sea? So it's funny, when a hurricane comes, the telegraph poles get knocked over, but the palm trees stay standing. Why is that? And the reason is the palm trees are flexible and the telegraph poles are rigid. So it turns out if you're a little bit clever and you can make a little bit, put a little bit of flexibility in your offshore wind platform, you can make it stand up even during a hurricane. 20s. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So if you had a magic wand, right, with your inventor hat on, what would you want Australia to do? I mean, Mike Cannon-Brooks has just kind of what is it, set up the or funded the largest solar farm in the world with a big electrical cord under the ocean all the way to Singapore. What level of infrastructure would you get excited about with the technology that's sort of either ready to go or about ready to go? So the inventor piece of me is in conflict with the policy piece of me. So my wife, who is a saint, allowed me to take the last 12 months off and the next 12 months off to work on getting the world's governments to pull their heads in and pull their weight. So... Um, while I can think of and do think of every day fun new energy technologies that change the game, the reality is the majority of our energy cost in any market is a regulatory problem. So Mike's electricity is fantastic. And when he turns that solar farm on, it'll probably make electricity at one and a half cents per kilowatt hour. That's only mildly cheaper than the two cent kilowatt hour electricity that solar farms that I'm building right now are making, which is not to criticize Mike, it'll be cheaper and that's great. But when I make two cent kilowatt hour electricity and I sell it to PG&E, which is a California energy company, they sell that same electricity back to me in San Francisco for 22 cents. 
10 cents of that 22 cents is the cost of the distribution grid, 3 cents of that 22 cents is the cost of the transmission, 2 cents is the cost for preventing wildfires. What I'm trying to say is it is our regulations, it's the way we build our distribution grids, it's all of these other factors that really, really, really impact the price of energy. Mm. In America, solar on your roof costs three times more than it does in Australia. The difference was Australia wrote some regulations where they certified young men and women to install the solar and to be so well-trained that they could also be trusted to do the inspection and make sure it was safe. That was very, very clever and eliminated what they call soft costs from our technology. And that's why rooftop solar in Australia is the cheapest electricity delivered to a consumer anywhere in the world. If I could wave a magic wand, it's not giant science projects or huge infrastructure projects, although I applaud both of those. Mm. It is governments just getting smart and the citizenry getting smart and demanding and just saying, all right, well, we did a good job on lowering the soft cost for solar and it also trained a whole bunch of people on how to do good tradie jobs earning money installing that solar. Let's do the same for electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Let's do the same thing for installing heat pumps. Let's do the same thing for installing homes on the side of batteries. And let's make sure that we don't let Ausgrid and the other distributors take all the honey out of the system in operating the distribution grid because actually the citizenry own own it. These are still, Mm. for the large part, the distributors are state-owned companies and so we all have an interest as voters and we should be demanding that they're making sure that the cost of these, the savings, these low energy costs that are possible should be passed on to the household. Mm. So what I'm really hoping for is the political and regulatory revolution. The technology is fun and I enjoy playing that game and I've done very well financially playing that game. Not as well as Mike. Mike's done, you know, Mike crushed it. Congratulations, Mike. Pretty well. But um, I think it is a problem for nerds Uh, You know, I live in Silicon Valley where everyone's a libertarian. They all don't trust government at all. They all forget that, in fact, it was the government that funded all the technologies that made them money. Hopefully, they have a quick come to Jesus and they realize that the government helped them be billionaires and they start getting engaged in politics, getting engaged in the regulatory environment because it's those problems that are preventing us from a future that would save every Australian household $5,000 a year. While we're talking those kind of figures... Household savings. Five, I think you've said five to six thousand dollars a year is how much every home would save if they electrified everything according to that sort of seven-point plan. Yeah, and and just so that people don't barf and or vomit or puke or what uh, chunder, chunder, I think is yeah. what we say in Australia. Um, so just so they don't chunder. I'm not saying that that would happen if you went out in 2022. That is what we know will be possible starting in the middle of this decade because batteries are becoming so cheap because solar is, you know, it's already dirt cheap. It's going to get half as cheap as dirt and then it's going to get half as cheap as half as cheap as dirt. So 2030, we could be all saving five to $6,000 a year if the government does the right thing. Yeah, some of the things, some of the costings that I, when I went down the rabbit hole of Saul Griffiths on the interwebs um, <laughs> over the last 24 hours, I mean, one of the th- figures I came across is that electric vehicles will it, could end up costing one cent per kilometre um, and I think it's more like 20 cents per kilometre at the moment um, for regular cars and then hot water, a heat pump, is 10 cents per shower compared with a standard shower today uh, which costs 80 cents. Any others? Any other good pervy kind of, you know, current affair type figures we can throw out there? I think it's about 10 cents to make a cup of tea with nat- with methane. And it costs you about two cents to make a cup of tea with uh, an induction cooktop running off your solar. Can I just throw in there as well, only ever boil the jug or the kettle with as much water as you need. People have this habit of filling the jug up and you're boiling two litres of water every time when you only need 250 mils. That's just another tip. While true, I will now warn you that my father once complained that you should always wash your hands with cold water which nearly caused divorce with my mother who liked to wash her hands with warm water. And his argument was you have to run all of the cold water through the pipes before the hot water arrives and that's wasting too much water. I think energy can be so cheap in Australia we don't have to be quite that frugal. Your dad needs to meet my dad. (laughs) 
my dad washes everything in the dishwasher because he's worked out that the dishwasher is the most economical way to do things when it's packed to within an inch or square centimetre of its life, including the toilet brush. The toilet brush goes through the dishwasher. Yeah, my dad could teach your dad how to cook a fish in a dishwasher, but not in the dishwasher that had your dad's toilet brush in it. <laughs> Perhaps they shouldn't meet. <laughs> hey, um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I know you've got a book to sell out there, which just so that everybody is reminded, it's um, available in Australia, I believe, in November, December, and I think it's great Christmas reading. It is a very positive book. You describe yourself on Twitter as climate positive, which I think is awesome. But there's a quote, I think, at the beginning of your book, and you say, the data convinces me that it, it is still rational to have hope but not for too much longer. I am going to ask you a tricky question because sometimes when I ask this question, guests will give me the answer they feel they need to give, right, to protect everybody's sensibilities. I'm going to ask you straight up, do you have hope? I mean, you're fighting like no one I've come across, but do you really have hope? Is it a really slim slither of a hope or do you feel it is an abundance of hope? Or none at all. In 1939, Churchill had his ass handed to him at Dunkirk and he called Roosevelt and said, we're fucked. This is a war that's going to be won by machines. I've seen those machines. It's tanks and airplanes. We don't have any. And by the way, Hitler's only 100 miles away from England and once he gets our Navy, he's coming for you. Churchill then went out before the... British people and gave, I think, one of the most consequential speeches of the 20th century, which is, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the in the air, we will fight them everywhere. This is to a demoralised nation that roughly at that point had zero chance of winning. Zero. He also lobbied Roosevelt at the same time to try and convince Roosevelt, who thought, who's, the Americans thought they were going to be fine, this is a European problem. But he convinced Roosevelt to actually launch something called the Arsenal of Democracy, which was the biggest public-private partnership in history where the American government partnered with American industry to make all of the machine guns, all of the airplanes, all of the boats to win the war. If you didn't have those two leaders in that place at that moment, the world would look enormously different today and it would be terrible. It is not an exaggeration to say that we are in a situation as dire as that and we need leadership that looks like Churchill's leadership and we need leadership that looks like Roosevelt's leadership. And if you look around the world and you look at the Muppets in charge in Australia and you look at how much trouble I think Biden's team is well motivated but they're hamstrung by the politics of the American moment and Europe looks like a basket case now Angler has gone, you'd say, well, we're in a spot of trouble here because... It's World War II and we don't have good leadership. But I don't think it's um, impossible that that leadership emerges quickly. I think things like the, the children who are making their voices heard with the the Fight for Fridays movements, um, I, 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 I don't think it's in, I don't think it's yet impossible. I think the fact that Fox Murdoch Media in Australia is testing the waters with positive climate solutions is really just their warm-up for the 2024 elections in the US. It is perilously close to the last possible moment for humanity to really, really go big, but we still, for a couple more years, have a chance to turn the ship around. But it's going to require leadership. It's going to require advocacy at every single level of society. It's going to require kids to march in the streets and it's going to require the middle class to take on things that they would think were uncomfortable in normal, easy times. That's what it takes. But humanity has mm. done things like that a number of times before. We just got to do it one more time. You've said it with another analogy using another, another incredible leader. JFK came out and went, well, we know where the moon is. And we kind of know how to build rockets and so therefore put out a plan to take man to the moon. It's kind of where we're at. We haven't even got to a point where we've got the imagination to put forward a plan, a vision of what we could look like. And I suppose that's what you've tried to do. Honestly, I can tell you where the moon is. It's an electric jet ski parked in your garage that's backing up your house. Um, on super cheap solar that's being produced all over Australia and Australia... It is not inconceivable. It would not be a lie 
for Scott Morrison to go to Glasgow and say before the world's leaders, we have done one thing very well. We have had the Australian rooftop solar miracle. We have incredibly cheap electricity on our rooftops. We know that we are the first country in the world where the economics are in favour of a complete decarbonisation of our domestic economy and we're going to be zero carbon in our households, in our small businesses and we're going to do that by 2030. That is completely achievable in Australia. It would save Australian households money, it would save the whole country money and then he should follow that statement up with We'll do that first. We'll show the world how to do it. You can buy our technology from us. We'll probably give you a discount because we're not very good at capitalizing on our intellectual property. And then in the 2030s, we will become the world's foundry and we will make steel for your wind turbines. We will make silicon for your solar cells. We will make half the world's copper for all of the electric circuits that are needed to run this. And we'll provide 20% of the world's lithium batteries for your cars. That's going to be Australia's contribution. We will be net zero as an entire nation, not by 2050, but by 2035 or 2040. And we'll be helping you all become net zero on the time frame required for one and a half to two degrees. That is absolutely a believable outcome for Australia. We are the country that can do this. We are well-educated. We are well-trained. We still, although it may not be true for another decade, but we still have good TAFE systems and good enough training systems to make sure that we have enough people on the ground who can get this done. Mm-hmm. I don't think unless Australia does that, that the world will solve this problem. I think Biden is so hamstrung by the Republicans in the US Congress. And his own party. We need a country to lead. And if, if America doesn't do it, you don't expect China to come in and say we're going to crush it for 2035. With with ambition, we get more ambition globally and you can see that in the way all the car companies negotiated down to Britain saying 2025 that they'll be nearly all electric vehicles. Like it just – it was a competition to see who could do the best. Australia sh- could change the global dialogue around climate change at Glasgow by making a serious commitment. Will that happen? It's unlikely <laughs> but I still have hope. Can we still solve climate change even if our Muppets go to Glasgow and just say, you know, they mumble net zero 2050, blah, 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 we'll still be selling coal to the rest of the world. The world could still do it without that commitment. But Australia has much more influence than we think and we could really be impactful and I think everyone should get really noisy in the next two weeks and see if we can affect that outcome. To that end, I know that you also say that People, the, the Debbie Downers and the Doomers say, look, it's going to take a miracle. And certainly it's some sort of miracle, I think, that's going to have to happen. But you say it won't. We just need hard work, which I tend to find extremely exciting and inspiring. What's the hard work that Australians can do over, let's say, the next six to 12 months that could really make a difference? We need to change the fabric of our politics. Some of it's changing by itself. Certainly you can imagine and a number of people imagine that enough independents get engaged with this issue that we have in a coalition of climate pro-climate independents shape all future governments, whether it's Labor or Liberal, in their coalition. By holding the balance of power. By holding the balance of power. So we need those independents could replace the Nats as the balance of power in Australia. That would change everything and that's within grasp at the next election. Also, we could just make our voices heard in every newspaper and every television show. We could march in the streets. Australians could decide to say, we want to go first. We could, you know, we could say, we're fed up. We had the fires once. We never want to have those fires again. This is what we demand of our government. That's not a terribly Australian thing to do, but that, yep. you know, we're not going to solve climate change without a hell of a lot of world's firsts. Well, this is the thing, Australia, I think we grew up, didn't we, believing that we were sort of, we were, we used to win Olympics. We held a whole heap of world records for all kinds of things and we were the innovation country. That's how you and I grew up. I think we're roughly the same age. And we would go overseas and people would think we were awesome. That is something that I think is the most hopeful pathway for Australians is because I think that we would like to define ourselves by that metric again as being the most inspiring, the freshest, the most uh, fired up, the most hopeful. That's kind of how we used to define ourselves. We were proud of it, of being innovative, of being kind of 
outrageously risky and optimistic. And I think that's something we could regain. Yeah, I think what's not understood to the point you're making, and I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off, but you got me all choked up and you're <laughs> excited. It. But like I think there's a whole lot of people waiting for politics as usual to solve this problem. There is no politics as usual that fixes climate on the time frame required. This is why, you know, lover or hater, Greta Thunberg is quite unbelievable. She's trying to change politics as we know it. Extinction Rebellion, the same, you know, hard to understand them in their anarchism, but like they're trying to change the politics of normal. You know what change the politics of normal would be a million Australians marching in the streets before Glasgow yeah. saying, why the hell aren't we leading the world? We have to change the politics of normal. The good news in Australia is changing the politics of normal is much easier in most of the other countries of the world, and it's in our economic interest. If you, you know, here's a different narrative. Scotty Morrison is trying to steal $5,000 a year from your yeah. family. Yeah. Go out there and fucking overthrow him. Unfortunately, you then have to replace him with something and there's not, doesn't look like we yet have a, <laughs> it's, you know, so I'm, I don't really mind if it's liberal or labor who's the other half of the independent coalition, but like, we've got to change the politics of normal in Australia and we have to do it like, yeah. Oh, don't wait another five years. No, you've got five weeks. Get out there. We've got a few months before the next election. It's likely to be March, April or May. And that will be our big opening to realise this vision of hope that you've put forward. And um, I think we're on the same page. And don't put it beyond the reach of the existing political parties. I think both of them, mm -hmm. honestly, they both should be trying to compete with each other, clamouring for your vote on how much money they're going to save you with the, with the better plan. Yeah. They've all got your phone number, I'm sure. They'll find you if they want to be able to latch onto your theory here, electrify everything. Hey, listen, this has been a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. Um, you've answered a lot of my questions. You've confirmed some of my my biases <laughs> um, and sorted a few things out, some some fact from fiction. Thanks again. And I've one last question. Do you still ride a bike everywhere? Every day. In fact, does everyone, you're my age, you remember the goodies. Goody, goody, yum, yum, yeah. Goody, goody, yum, yum. You remember the bicycle they had, the three-seater? The threes, yeah. I am such a tragic bicycle nerd that I built a four-seat bicycle for my family. It's fully seven metres long. You can't turn it around in a single street. <laughs> um, I built it when my daughter was four and a half, so her cranks are, you know, 100 millimetres long. Normal bicycle cranks are twice that. And we can sit the whole family down the middle of this thing and when we go by in a parade everyone just stops and laughs so the yeah the perils of having an inventor as a father oh my goodness my children are forever broken <laughs> Saul Griffiths thank you very much for existing thank you very much for having my new show so off air, Saul and I then continued our mad chat about even more ludicrous ideas for winning the culture wars and I threw a few more sort of volleys, doomy volleys at him, which he answered um, probably in a too technical and too crude manner for us to air here with you. But I'm hoping that all of you listening get as excited as I do and as many commentators from both sides of the political divide tend to get when they hear Saul talk about his wild solution for our future because it does seem wonderfully fresh and, and doable. Now, some of the take-homes, the future-proofed take-homes that I think we could take from the chat with Saul. Now, if you are renovating, what you need to do is switch any of your appliances, any of your heating systems, your water systems um, to electricity. Have absolutely no gas operating in your home. Now, if you're renovating your kitchen, you will want to switch from a gas stove to an induction stove. And I can say that working with a number of chefs in this area, it's what they're all doing. Induction is the future of cooking. If you're due to buy a new car, and it's only when you're due to buy a new car, buy electric. And of course, just remember that one cent per kilometre saving that we're going to be talking about going forward. Don't be fooled by this idea of a gas-led recovery. It's a furphy. Also be very wary of the carbon sinking or the, the carbon offsetting debate. Um, it is not a solution. It probably is required to help with uh, drawing down some of our emissions, but it's certainly not a solution to this big, big problem. And then I'd say finally, get 
super excited by anyone who is taking on some of these big ideas and wanting to put forward policy ideas that speak to this electrify everything argument because I do feel that it's a very, very sound one and get excited by anyone entering the political debate who is going to be operating as an independent, a climate-orientated independent at the next election. And on that front, stay tuned for some exciting stuff that I hope Saul and I will be working on now that we've had our chat off air going forward. Until next time, stay wild. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.